This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. I do feel of all of the stories I've written, this could be the most chilling in that it's the first incidence that I've ever uncovered in which anybody could have been the victim. You, me, anybody who had a headache. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast, Buried Bones on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. You might remember the case of Stella Nichol. What a story. In the mid-1980s, she was suspected of murdering her husband using headache pills laced with poison. But then it got so much worse because those pills were being sold to the public and someone else died. It created a panic that even I remember, and I was only 12 years old. Author Greg Olson details the story in his book, American Mother, the true story of a troubled family, motherhood, and the cyanide poisonings that shook the world. Tell me about Stella from the beginning. This is rural Washington state, is that right? Yes, right. You know, Stella is one of those people, when you look at the trajectory of her life, you can clearly see that she's on this path, which I think most killers are. They're on the path very early. It's not like you wake up one day, you know, and you decide you're going to be a murderer or going to kill somebody for profit or for whatever. She was a girl who had a really tough upbringing. I mean, she was in two house fires, badly burned. She was beaten by her mother. She was pregnant at age 13 in a gang rape. I mean, all of the things that you can imagine would be the worst things that could happen to a girl or a child happened to her. So even with all of that said, Kate, she had a kind of plucky resilience in a way that sometimes hard-bitten people do. They kind of accept that they have been uh, given a bad lot in life and they live that for a little bit until they can no more do it. And that's that's what happened to her. So young girl, lots of tragedy, lots of problems. And of course, that morphs into an adult with uh, bigger chances for bigger problems. But she meets this man, Bruce Nickel. Can we talk a little bit about him and the dynamic of their relationship? Right. I mean, it was her second marriage when she found Bruce Nickel, who was a mechanic working for the state of Washington. And before that, he worked at the Boeing Company. So he was an alcoholic who cleaned up, took the treatment, and really like lived that life where she was more of a faded party girl. She still wanted to hang out at the bars, you know, throw darts, drink a lot, tease the other men, that kind of a thing. I mean, she was that kind of a person. That was her her culture at that time. Bruce, you know, he didn't want that anymore. He wanted more of a stable homebody kind of situation. And that wasn't going to be what she wanted. And that's going to be really Bruce's undoing. So is Bruce truly a victim here who, as we move forward, is not someone at fault in any way? I mean, I know you said they had a troubled relationship, but there's nothing that could have been predicted 
that this would happen, except that Stella clearly is unstable for all of her life. Right. I mean, Stella picked men in her life, by the way, that didn't abuse or beat her or harm her in any way. It really was the opposite. She was always the ringleader in whatever situation that they got into. So Bruce was a nice man. I mean, when people say, oh, salt of the earth, it sounds sort of corny, like we can't, you know, we're just using that phrase, but that's really what he was. He was good. He rode his motorcycle. He worked outside and did physical things that helped, you know, their property, worked his tail off at his job. So he's all goodness. Stella, you know, is she's that flip side. And I think that, in a way, attracted him. I mean, she was fun and she was sexy and she liked to, you know, play around and do a lot of different things. And I think for Bruce being kind of the homebody type, that was super attractive at first. What about the introduction of a child into their relationship? I know people think that that is helpful sometimes. I do not find children to be helpful <laughs> in marriages right. <laughs> all the time in our true crime stories. So what was her reaction to being a mother? Right. So, well, you know, Stella was a mother long before she met Bruce. She had that first baby at age 13. Um, and she had another one shortly after that. So when she met Bruce, she, it was a ready-made family. Although Stella didn't raise her children, she left them with her first husband. So Bruce didn't really get the benefit of that closeness with a child, which I think he would have been good at. I think he would have enjoyed that time. He certainly loved the other kids that were in their trailer park neighborhood and was, you know, helping them with their bikes and stuff. He was a good guy. But what he was handed was kind of a younger version of Stella when it came to be those older children coming to visit or to live with her. The primary one being uh, Cynthia. She was a lot like her mother, boisterous and really fun-loving and maybe a little bit out of control and also very, very smart. So they are living a life where Bruce seems to be someone who's a great provider and someone who would love to have had his own children, but he's welcoming of all these children as well as the other children in the neighborhood. And Stella still feels like a party girl. Are there any examples? I mean, she's going out really late at night or is there infidelity that you know about? Yeah, of course there is. I mean, Stella had a mattress in the back of her pickup truck. Oof. And she would have guys, uh, you know, in the bar come, you know, hang out in the back of the truck. <laughs> I mean, it was like, it was bold and ridiculous. I remember talking to one of her boyfriends at the time when Bruce was working in the oil fields in Alaska. He had taken a job up there and Stella took a boyfriend. And this guy told me, he says that we were on the phone one time when we were in bed and was talking to Bruce while we were having sex. Hmm. And when you hear that, you think, wow, I mean, there's no boundaries there, right? No. So when do things go from being she is not the best wife in the world to really taking a turn? Is there some sort of a trigger that happens in Stella? Yeah. I mean, their money troubles start to pile up oh. and her dissatisfaction with her, her lot in life. I mean, she had this idea that she could, you know, reinvent herself, maybe open up a tropical fish store because she loved tropical fish. That was a thing for her. She also loved ceramics. So she thought, maybe I could reinvent myself in a new life and run a ceramic shop. So she had dreams of more than what she was doing there, living in the trailer with her husband, as good as he was. It was boring to her. So that's when she started thinking of ways to get out of her marriage and ways to get money. Would Bruce have supported any of these business ventures? I think Bruce would have done anything for her. Hmm. He loved her. He absolutely loved her. And that's kind of like the tragedy of the whole thing because she's a woman who's incapable of loving anybody. 
including her own children and certainly not her husband. She really is that narcissistic personality that only cares about herself. That's not me just like trying to paint a picture for a reader or somebody to understand who she is. That is the freaking truth. All she cared about was Stella. So in June of 1986, she decides to hatch a plan. What do we know about the planning beforehand of all of this? Here's the thing with it, Kate. She was thinking of all sorts of ways that she could get rid of her husband and collect on life insurance. That was her big scheme. So she talked to her daughter. She talked to other people kind of vaguely at first and then more, I guess, more directly about maybe she could hire a hitman to kill him or perhaps he could get run over in traffic. She thought of different ways and she kind of thought, well, what poisoning, poisoning might work. She went so far as even putting toxic seeds from a foxglove plant into his iced tea. Hmm. She mixed that in there thinking that that might kill him because she had read somewhere that that plant, which was grown on their property, would be uh, deadly to somebody. She tried that out. It just made him kind of lethargic. It didn't really do anything. But then she had another idea. She had an idea. You know, she looked to history and she looked at what had happened in Chicago with the Tylenol poisonings. And she thought, okay, that person killed all those people and was never caught. There's a kind of a wicked simplicity to this whole thing. It's like you kill the person you want to kill, but you also put the product out there. If it's tainted aspirin or headache medicine or whatever, out on store shelves, you're going to kill somebody else, but it's going to hide. It's going to mask the identity of who that killer is because no one's going to know. They're going to think it's random. Will you give us the Cliff Notes version of what happened with the Tylenol? I remember, but what's the summary of what happened with that case in Chicago? Yeah, I mean, that is still an unsolved case. Hmm. We don't know who the perpetrator is, although the FBI believes that it is somebody tied to one of the victims. And there were seven people took Tylenol. It was in capsule form. And inside those capsules, some of them had been tainted with cyanide. I mean, this was before the whole idea of any kind of terrorism you know, where where we could be randomly hurt. There's talk about all of that now, like could someone poison our water supply? You know, all of that stuff we hear, right? But back then, you know, you go to the grocery store and you have a headache, you buy a bottle of Excedrin or Tylenol and uh, you take it. You don't even think that anybody would want to hurt you. But in that case, seven people died and whoever did it got away with it. And Stella had read articles about that and she thought, okay, it worked once. I bet it could work again. That was her thinking. Is it that easy to get a hold of cyanide in 1986? Very easy. In fact, all you had to do was show a driver's license in some states and others you didn't have to. You could go to a farm supply store, say it was for uh, ants who were trying to eradicate or gophers or whatever. Now it's much tougher to buy. But, you know, people could get their hands on anything they want to get through different ways. So she says, how am I going to use the cyanide? to kill him. And what does she physically do to make this a weapon? She buys a bunch of Excedrin capsules, you know, from different stores, and she takes them home, opens up the capsules, empties out the headache medicine in them, and she grinds up because cyanide is gritty, a little bit gritty. She grinds it up and stuffs that back into those capsules and then just twists the top close and puts it back on the shelves. And here's the thing about it. People say, well, Gosh, I can't even open those caps. They're so hard to get, you know. Or what about all that shrink wrap and all of that stuff? None of that existed back in those days. People could buy anything and stick anything in it. In fact, Stella told her friend, she said, 
I'm not even worried about shoplifting, really, because when I come to put those bottles back in the store, nobody's going to think a thing of it because I'm adding something to the store. I'm not taking something away. So her plan is to take all of these bottles. How many bottles did she? Five. Five bottles and alter all of the capsules or just a few capsules in each bottle? Just a few. Then returning him to the store. And then what happens? She asks Bruce to go buy her a bottle or? No, here's what really happened. She killed him first. She gave him the pills. He took them and, you know, cyanide death is very quick. It's really suffocation at the cellular level. It's really, it's brutal. It's painful. And it's uh, something no one would ever want to go through. But she fed it to him and then she called 911 and they came and got him. And she even made a big scene in front of the police saying, you know, I gave him these pills right before he fell to the ground. Kind of highlighted that maybe it was a poisoning, but nobody was thinking about that. You know, they thought it was just a grieving woman whose husband had just flopped onto the floor. And here's what happened. He died. And for a week, there's nothing. She keeps saying, you better check because I think my husband, you know, he, he was not uh, ill, you know, and they said, well, he had emphysema and that's what killed him. And, and anybody who knows emphysema, it's a slower death. It's not an overnight thing. So then she decides, okay, I got to get this thing going. I'm going to put some more on the shelves. So she put three more bottles on the grocery store shelves and a woman named Sue Snow, the mother of two, a bank manager, unwittingly was one of those people who purchased a bottle of Excedrin, took it and died immediately. And when her death happened, they smelled what that weird smell is that cyanide emits. Almonds. Yeah, it's the bitter almonds. Very few people can smell it. And they were lucky that one of the people assisting, you know, in the um, autopsy got that whiff. And as soon as that happened, you know, Stella started calling and saying, my husband had the same pills. Okay. If they are saying, no, it's emphysema, why would she just not go, okay, you're probably right. Well, it's it's really obvious. I mean, death by poisoning or murder is considered accidental death. And she had that double indemnity clause on that thing. And she was going to, you know, get every penny. It was $200,000 instead of around 75000 was what she was going to get. She could have gotten away with it. You know, she would have gotten maybe enough money for her fish store or her ceramics shop back in those days to start one. But it wasn't enough. I mean, she was willing to really risk everything to get everything she felt was coming to her. But you're right. She'd gotten away with it. And if she kept her mouth shut, we wouldn't be talking about her case right now. Okay, double indemnity. Wow. So 100,000 to about 200,000 for accidental. Yes. Okay, let's pause a second and move over to the second victim. So Bruce Nichols gone. Stella is saying you need to look into this. He took these mysterious pills in the meantime, Sue Snow, who doesn't know the other victim, right? Does she know the Nichols at all? No. That's the part that is so chilling. There's no connection with these victims. There's nothing to relate. Why did he get the pills and why did she get them? And they looked at that for a long time because they wondered, like, did Bruce know Sue? They even wondered, was there an affair between Bruce Nickel and Sue Snow? Something, you know, to tie them together. And of course, there isn't anything because it's purely a random act. She just went there, the unlucky person to buy those pills. Tell me about Sue. I know she has a 15-year-old daughter at the time of her death. Can you give me a little bit of information about what she was like and then what happens to her when she arrives home with this bottle of Excedrin? The thing about Sue is, you know, this is the kind of a pitfall of true crime writing where people say, uh, or writers often say, oh, she was such a lovely person, so much fun and kind and smart. And then it always sounds like it's fake, right? 
But really, she was all those things. She had a twin sister, Sarah. She had two daughters. She was on her second marriage to a man named Paul Webking at the time. And things were kind of good. They'd had their little problems. So, you know, they were kind of back together in a way that they hadn't been. And then this comes along. You know, she buys those pills. And, you know, the minute she dies, everybody kind of wonders, well, did Paul have something to do with it? Sarah, the twin, said so out loud. Haley, who was the 15-year-old daughter, she wondered too. There were so many questions about who did what and why Sue was dead. None of them related to Stella Nickel because we didn't know about Stella. So imagine a house, a turmoil going on within a home where your loved one just died. The police are there and everybody is wondering, Kate, who killed her and why? And could it be him? What is the time span between the time that Bruce dies and the time that Sue dies? I think about nine days. So when is there a autopsy on both of these people and they find out it's cyanide and the panic begins and the connection is made to the drugstore or the store? What happens after that woman smells the bitter almonds and they know now Bruce is a cyanide death, it doesn't take them, you know, two seconds to determine that when Sue Snow comes in and presents like a cyanide victim, that they know it's her that she had died in the same way. So the connection was made right away when Sue's body was brought in. And then they did the examination of the contents of the bottles in her home and in Stella's home. And they found two bottles Stella had that were tainted. And they also found a bottle in Sue Snow's house that were tainted with Excedrin poisoning. And both Stella and Sue's family are asked, where did you get these bottles? Stella says she went to three different stores or two different stores at two different times, which is kind of was her undoing later in that, like, how could she be so unlucky to buy two bottles of these? You know, there's only five total, and she bought two that were poisoned, and Sue's were in another part of town, so they weren't all at the same store at the same time. Is there panic locally where they start clearing the shelves of all of these bottles of all aspirin, not just Excedrin? There was. I mean, I lived here during all of that time when that was happening, and it was huge news. I mean, a total recall of Excedrin and then later Anison 3, because that was one of the bottles was an Anison 3 bottle. We were all told to get rid of your, you know, Excedrin if you had any, get rid of it, take it to the police station or even throw it away. It was fine. If you had that particular lot number, you were told to present it to the police or call 911 and have them come get it. But it was panic. And it was that whole dynamic of thinking, well, you know, it happened in Chicago. Now it's happened here in Seattle. You know, what are we coming to? Because something so safe as buying something at the grocery store can now be used to kill you. So is Paul, Sue's husband, under suspicion by the police other than his children or the kids who say, eh, I don't know? No, Paul knew he was under suspicion and he took a polygraph to prove that he you know, had nothing to do with it. But he did act in strange ways that made, you know, the family members think maybe he did do it because he said, you know, I bought that bottle or they're going to find out that I have some of those pills in my car you know, let's go get the pills out of my car. Things that made it seem like, well, what is he covering up? But he really wasn't. He was like any innocent person when you're confronted with something and the worst possible thing is happening. And you're thinking, well, I know I didn't do it, but they're acting like I did. What do I need to get rid of? <laughs> you know what I mean? That has nothing to do with the crime, but you're still terrified. I mean, it's a big deal to have the FBI right in your face saying, why'd you kill your wife? 
Did he have life insurance on Sue? Yeah, he did. And they had it on each other. Most married couples do. Mm-hmm. When you say, you know, do you have life insurance on? It's like suddenly that becomes really dark and, and scary when in fact, well, if you asked me the day before, it would I would have said sure. And it would have been, I wouldn't have felt anything bad about it. No, you would have felt like you were being a responsible spouse and parent. That's right. So the police are more suspicious of Sue or Paul or random stranger who's targeting anybody who buys Excedrin. They focus mostly on Stella after they exonerate Paul through that polygraph. The reason they do that, because Stella keeps refusing to take one. They keep asking her to take a poly, and she doesn't want to do it. She said it would be like reliving Bruce's death again and too upsetting. And she keeps, you know, not following up when they ask her to. So they're they're thinking about that. They're thinking, why is she doing that? Why isn't she helping find out who killed her husband? And on the other hand, she's also making phone calls to Washington State, which held the insurance policy on Bruce. And she's calling them almost every day saying, uh, he died of cyanide poisoning. I need my money. It's been proven. So she was calling frequently. And the women down there, you know, in the insurance office were thinking, this is kind of weird. Her husband died. And yeah, we know that the cause of his death has been changed from emphysema to this poisoning. But Stella's affect is strange to them. She's not upset about Bruce. She's upset that she hasn't gotten her money yet. And isn't it interesting that she's acted like that, that what we would consider to be suspicious behavior to somebody who is narcissistic or who has psychopathy or something can not recognize that. I often talk to a forensic psychologist who says that they often foul their own nests yeah. You know, they can't help it. And so you would think that she would tailor her behavior a little bit more to be the grieving widow who is just someone who is, you know, collateral damage in all of this, but apparently not. Yeah, you make a good point. We think sometimes that these people who do crimes like what Stella had done, they're a mastermind. Yeah. They're so clever and they are, you know, what a cold, calculating person to do that. In reality, they're just dumb, too. I really find it fascinating when people say, oh, that woman was so cold and conniving, you know, and devious. And it's like, really? She was just kind of lucky for a while, if that was her plan. I've written about plenty of very, very intelligent book smart killers who were not good criminals for various reasons, and they couldn't get out of their own way. And it sounds like Stella was doing a little bit of that. So the police are homing in on her because she's acting suspicious, and the insurance company is saying she is hounding us and doesn't sound like a woman who is trying to prepare to to bury her husband. What is the next step for the police? What is their due diligence in this investigation? They start clearing the shelves, obviously. So your listeners know this is a federal case. This is product tampering, and it involves the FBI. Well, the local police certainly did their part in the investigation. It was really an FBI case. I think the key to the whole thing was they were looking at the contents of those pills and examining those in the labs in Washington, taking a look, and they were seeing some anomalies in there. They saw these little green specks, and that wasn't something that was in cyanide. It wasn't in Excedrin or Anison 3, and they determined that it was an algicide. They were looking and thinking, okay, what is this doing in there? That was a key. They were like, how does that work? And at the same time, they're talking to different people who knew Stella, friends, of course, and family, really working that case. And one of their key contacts, of course, is Cindy, Stella's daughter, who is, you know, in her 20s. She is, you know, a kind of a younger version of Stella. 
when I say that, it's like tough and smart, street smart. They're talking to her and they're saying, we think your mom did this. Your mom did this. And she's saying, no, she didn't. She didn't. And so they're really working her. And at the same time, they're doing the forensics on the contents of the pills. That's really what the case is all about. What's the green spec? Where did it come from? And how do we tie that, you know, to the killer? What is algicide? What is that? Okay, an algicide is, it's like a chemical poison that you use to kill algae in your aquarium. Oh. And Stella was a tropical fish fancer. She had two aquariums in her house, you know, and she was thinking of that was kind of her dream. She was going to open a big tropical fish store. So she has that product. And how they determine she has that product is an FBI agent who interviewed her at home. When he gets word of the algicide being inside those capsules, and they determine it's an aquarium product called Algae Destroyer. He says she had two tanks. So that's the first inkling that maybe they can tie Stella to the poisoning. They're already thinking it's probably going to be her by her behavior and what people are saying about her, her not going to the polygraph. So that's kind of what they focus on at that point. So they think that there's a product in her house that somehow unintentionally ended up in these capsules. I'm assuming it's when she's doing her little surgery or whatever on the capsules and putting the cyanide in. She's got this stuff on her hands or on the table? What they think she did was she used a bowl, a plastic bowl or something like that, to mash up the cyanide. And it was a bowl that she had used to dilute and to sort of liquefy the algae destroyer tablets. They were a tablet. And sometimes when that algae destroyer, like a little green pill you drop in your aquarium, sometimes it just sits there for a while and doesn't really break down to do its work. And they're interviewing people at the fish store that she used to frequent. And one of the guys says, I know that customer. In fact, I told her that it's easier to take that tablet and put it in a bowl and mash it down before you put it in your aquarium because then it will dissolve readily and it'll do its job of killing all that green gunk, you know, that's on the glass. Hmm. So that's what they think happened. They think Stella did that with the bowl and then used the same bowl with the cyanide, inadvertently mixing things up. It's to the naked eye. You see the green specks. I've seen pictures of it. It's there, but she didn't think it was going to be anything that would get her in trouble. But being a defense attorney... Wouldn't you say, lots of people have aquariums and lots of people have used this. And I know it's a weird coincidence, but it is not like ballistics and a gun where you can prove this definitively came from her. Is that sort of what police are also saying is, well, this is a little tiny piece in a circumstantial case, but we need more? You totally nailed it. It is one piece. It's a big piece. But you also have the fact that they determined that she had forged the signatures on the insurance policies, that she was writing checks under Bruce's name, you know, and and very much trying to forge a signature. She was really trying hard to make it look like Bruce was agreeing with all the stuff she was doing. Her phone calls to try to get the money, that's another piece. The most damning piece, though, came from her daughter. And her daughter, Cindy, finally came to the FBI with a story. And as anybody in the legal profession knows, or anybody who sat in a courtroom, it's all about the story, right? All of those things that are pieces of evidence, that connective tissue of what she was thinking and doing and saying, that's the part that brings somebody, you know, from the defense table back to, uh, you know, prison or whatever. It's the story. And Cindy had the story. She goes to the FBI and says, what? What happened between her and Bruce that Stella decided to do this? She goes to the FBI and she finally, you know, says, you know, first 
she says, my mom couldn't possibly have done it. And she would never have hurt anyone. She loved Bruce, blah, blah, blah. And then later, as more of the evidence is presented to Cindy, the algae destroyer that had tainted some of that poison, the forgeries, all those things, the fact that her mother had been checking out books from the library about cyanide and about poison plants, you know, there were, and her fingerprints were all over this. There was more and more evidence coming, right? They needed that narrative and they got Cindy to say it. And Cindy said, my mom was going to kill my dad by hiring a hitman. My mom was going to do this. My mom was going to do that. All that whole list of the ideas Stella had presented, she presented them to her daughter. And her daughter finally said, oh, this is the story. This is what happened. The FBI must have just been flabbergasted by all of that. I think the FBI knew all along that the key to the case was going to be the daughter or going to be some of those trailer park friends that Stella had that would crack, that would finally, you know, say what they knew to be true. They knew Stella was scheming and doing all that stuff, but they needed other people to really say it. And what they did, which a lot of people had, there was controversy about it, was there was a big uh, reward offered, a $250,000 reward was offered for information leading to the arrest and conviction of Stella Nichol. And a lot of people came forward to collect, and Cindy was one of them. How many people do you think knew that she was scheming to kill her husband, really knew and took it seriously and didn't say anything? Yeah, that's really hard to say, but I say like probably a half a dozen people. (sighs) This is what's weird about it. It's like... You can listen to somebody and they say, oh, I think he was just, or she was just blowing off steam. You know, when someone says, I could kill him or, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? There's a lot of people who say that kind of stuff. So when you look back with hindsight, you think, oh, was that really a message that she was going to actually do it? Or was she blowing off steam or whatever? It's hard for us to know. But I think when you look at somebody who's taking that concrete plan, that step in trying to, you know, like, what time does he get off work? you know, so that he could go be hit by the car. (laughs) When they're doing specifics like that, then you got to take it seriously and you got to raise your hand and say something about it. But I think it's really hard for us, all of us, to think that somebody would do the unthinkable. Especially to her husband. How much responsibility slash blame do you put on Cindy's shoulders? She's in her 20s. She's not a teenager. She's in her 20s. She knows about this. Her mother, it sounds like, is bouncing ideas off of her. At what point, we know that Cindy is a victim of her mother's narcissism, I'm sure. But at what point do we say, I cannot believe that this person is then going to collect money for turning over information? You know, Kate, I had a harsh view of Cindy when I wrote the book. I kept thinking, um, maybe Cindy did it. Maybe she and Stella did it together. You know, there was some overlap there. But I've come to think, you know, I've talked to Cindy since the book came out. And I feel that, like, I'm a pretty good judge of character. I think all the things you said about her being abused and all of that and have a narcissistic mother, I think those are true factors in what happened. I think also there's this idea that she really didn't want to believe it was true. Also, it's like your mom. It's really hard to go against your mother. She could be the worst person in the world. And God knows there are a ton of stories that keep me writing books about the worst mothers in the world. They're out there. And people always wonder, like, why didn't that kid break earlier? Why didn't the husband, you know, divorce her? And it's like, it's very hard. It's hard to break away from something that's wrapped around your neck. It's choking you, barely letting you breathe. But you want to give that mom a second chance. 
Is there a chance that Stella would have gotten away with this had Cindy not gone to the FBI? This seems like a preponderance of evidence against her. Yeah, 100%. I think Cindy was the reason that Stella got convicted. Hmm. I have no doubt about that. I think Stella, even the forgery, you know, she could say, well, I signed for my husband all the time, you know, because he was away. That could be explained. She said that she researched poison plants and cyanide because she had a granddaughter and she didn't want the granddaughter to eat a toxic plant or whatever. I mean, there there were excuses. Now, they seem silly and, and ridiculous and feeble even, you know, but all it takes is one person to believe her. And no proof that she bought the cyanide. Did you say that, that they couldn't trace it? No. What is the reaction to this whole story from Haley, who is Sue Snow's 15-year-old daughter, who we didn't even really get to talk about this, had to say goodbye to her mother before her mother died? I mean, how horrific. And now she finds out why her mother died, which was some arbitrary purchase at a store. Yeah. I mean, I've known Haley for many, many years. She's a mom now. And she, uh, in fact, Stella was up for parole and Haley was there online, you know, the way they do it now. Stella has been a part of her life in a very bad way for 30 some years, right? But Haley is, you know, she's that opposite kind of person from people like Stella who do harm based on tragedy that has been done to them, whether it's abuse or in Haley's case, her, you know, her mother was murdered and she basically had to, you know, start over with her whole life, without her mom, this this beloved mother of hers, her best friend. And she turned out great. She's great, but she's got this thing called Stella Nickel that is a part of her story until the day she dies. And I think that's really unfortunate, really sad. What about Paul, who was also affected? He lost his wife, even though they had a, a difficult marriage at times. He's accused and doesn't even have a chance to grieve. And now I haven't seen Paul in many years, but I mean, when I was interviewing him, you know, he had remarried and he had had a, he had a new life going. So he rebounded that way. But again, that whole thing, like if somebody accused you of some kind of abuse or murder or whatever, and you were innocent, I think that's sort of a stain that stays with you, even though they say you're not. I mean, you Google his name and you might just read the part where he was accused. You don't go to the whole <laughs> end of it that says, you know, that he didn't do it. He was exonerated. He took a polygraph and he passed. And of course, he was never even close to being the killer. But I think that's kind of like, I don't know, the fallout of a lot of crimes is that, you know, when they're trying to figure out who did it, there's collateral damage about all those pe- all those people that are around the crime. They kind of, they get a piece of it and they get it for the rest of their life. What about the rest of Stella's children? Did we have any idea how any of them turned out after all of this? Because this happened in 86. So this case is 37, 38 years old. Yeah, the youngest daughter died a few years ago, Leah. Cindy, I hadn't talked to her ever when I wrote the book, but I did hear from her a couple of years ago. And we, you know, talked on the phone and we traded uh, text messages and all that. Cindy's had a hard life too, but she's got a great sense of humor. She's she's sounds like Stella to me on the phone. You know, when I met Stella, there's definitely that family resemblance in that in her look too. She told me one thing I thought was interesting. I said, you know, do you regret what you did? You know, and she said, no. She said, in fact, though, Sue Snow hadn't been killed. I never would have turned in my mother. Ugh. If she had just kept murdering the family, I would have just kept my mouth shut. But she killed somebody for no reason or whatever. And I couldn't live with that. What do you make of that though, Kate? The idea that if it's your stepfather, uh, you know, and my mom did it, 
but I'm going to stay with my mom. But since she brought a stranger into the mix, I'm going to tell on my mom. I find that kind of interesting. This is no comment really on Cindy, but I've mentioned this on the show a couple of times, that when I say to a forensic psychologist, I talk about like why different serial killers make decisions. And they say, well, you know, they have their own set of morals. And I said, what? No, they don't. And they said, sure they do. They have ethics and morals. They just are not our ethics and morals. And I've said this before, John Reginald Christie, who I wrote about, loved his animal He loved his dog. He spent all of his money to put the dog down before he went on the run. That was his, one of his, you know, morals. So maybe Cindy's like that too. I don't understand it, but she has some sort of a allegiance to her mom, apparently not to Bruce. I mean, that seems clear. She said she loved Bruce, that he was a great guy. And yeah, so that's not true. She loved him. And as far as her mom goes, she's never seen her mom since her mom went to prison. They've never communicated in any way, no phone calls, no prison visits, no letters, nothing. So even though she, you know, it's like she gave away everything. She got the $200,000, you know, back then I thought, wow, that's a lot of money. But today you wouldn't know it. I mean, she lives a very simple life taking care of, uh, you know, her own grandkids. So, you know, it didn't turn out so great for her either. Well, another thought for me, I think also would be the randomness, it sounds like, bothered Cindy. Because if it were in the family, it was predictable. She warned everybody, I am going to kill my husband. So it didn't sound like she had a fear that, you know, eventually Stella would kill her or any of the other siblings. She had said very clearly, this is my intention. But when you're killing random people, it just, yeah, it's a another ethical line I would not agree with, but that she has. I think you're spot on on that. I mean, it takes it out of the family and that's not going to happen on her watch. That's her code. I mean, we think it's so, you know, if it's within the family, it's super fine, but it's not. And that's hard for you to understand, Kate. I don't understand it, but I know that it means something to her. You interviewed Stella Nickel also? Yeah. Oh. Tell me about it. You said the last, I hope people stick around for the end of this. What happened with this woman? Was she just as self-absorbed and narcissistic as I imagine in my head she was in an interview with a journalist? You know, here I am. I'm writing this book about her crime and everything. And she knows that I'm talking to all of her friends and all in the FBI and everything, because that's kind of how I work. I start from the outside and work in before I go to the perpetrator. And Stella, you know, she looked at me and she says, Greg, I'm really good at sizing people up. I'm looking right at you. And I know you're going to write a really fair book about me. And I thought, okay. So, and I feel like I did. She didn't like the book when it came out because there was a lot of sex stuff in it. And then later she did send me a note. She said, I think I hadn't read it when I was reacting to you before. And I read it now. And she said, I think you were fair. Okay. When I met her, I met her four times in prison. She's in federal prison in California. So I saw her on four different visits. And, you know, each time... I was really pushing for her to tell me the truth about, was there an accomplice? I always felt at that time that Cindy had helped her. Hmm. And she said, oh, it could be, I'm not sure. I know that at that point, Stella knew that if she told me Cindy was an accomplice, she would be confessing that she had been the killer too. And she said, I have no idea what my daughter did. I don't know, maybe, possibly, kind of lead me along. It was only until about a year ago after multiple attempts before the parole board, she's almost, she's at 78 years old now. She's been in there a long time. 
she's finally confessed. Mm. And she's finally said, I did it. I don't know why I killed Bruce. He didn't beat me. He wasn't unkind to me. I can't answer the why, but yes, I did do that crime. She didn't answer what happened to Sue. You know, she didn't ever comment on killing Sue Snow, but she did it finally confess after 30 years of saying she was innocent. Um, and then she made a, a compassionate plea to get out of prison because of her age and because of her health, which uh, the prison board, re you know, they turned that down. They won't, they wouldn't let her out and they shouldn't. She killed somebody, two people, but she killed a person she didn't even know. And she did it in a way that risks everybody's lives that were in that store or could shop there. And that's not the kind of person we want free. I don't think she ever will get out. She will end up, you know, serving more time in a federal prison than any other woman, I think, in U.S. history. Amazing. What are your takeaways from this story? That whole idea, Kate, that we don't really know, you know, why people do the things they do. We can guess and we can spin a story, right? We can tell people all these little bits of evidence point to the reason why this happened. I thought that was a really good case for me to learn from in that regard. But I also thought about the power of family, whether your family's corrupt or whatever. There is a kind of that old thing that, you know, the tie that binds is family. And it's really true. People will do anything to protect each other until their price is met. And in Cindy's case, it was $200,000. So who ends up walking away with all that money? Is it all to Cindy? No, there was about 50000 that was divided among, I think, four other people. The fish store owner that identified her as the shopper for the algae destroyer tablets, he got some money and a couple of other friends got some money too. Did anything functional come out of this, like any legislation or any changes with bottling? Did this case have an impact that's just further than a true crime case? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it had a huge impact. It changed really everything. The safety seals that, you know, you see after you open the bottle, there's a safety seal there. It's foil. And if you see any sign of tampering and you know that somebody got in there, there's also shrink wrap around the outside of the boxes now. The caps, everything now is designed so that nobody can get in there and tamper with that product without you as the consumer wondering like, oh, well, why is that turned this way? Or why is this slit cut in here? You would see any sign now. Before, all they had to do was take the top off and you know put something in. Now they've got to cut it open and it's, it's just not going to happen like it did before. What I tell people, it's like, this is the only crime that has affected all of us. If you've taken any product for headache relief or a cough medicine or anything like that, you can thank Stella Nickel and what she did because she affected our daily lives for everyone in this country. If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our associate producer is Alex Chi. This episode was mixed by John Bradley. Curtis Heath is our composer. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words.
Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.